again this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 1. Having considered what God did before he began to fashion the world, what he did beginning with the creation of the world itself, we have considered what he did on the first three days, and we began to consider in our last sermon two weeks ago from today, what God did on the fourth day, the creation of the sun, moon, and the stars. And uh, we have a lot more we need to say about that, uh, fill, up, fill up a sermon anyway. And uh, so we've decided to do that, and I would like you to follow along as we read once again what the scriptures say about that day. Genesis 1, beginning with verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, or the expanse of the heavens, to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule by the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Once again, let's pray for the help of God. Most gracious and glorious God, we do thank you and praise you for this marvelous account of what you did at the very beginning of time. And we do thank you for the brief account that we have just read concerning your creation of the heavenly bodies, all of which give ceaseless testimony to your glory, your praise, and your wisdom. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with wonder and awe as we consider these things once again. Send your spirit, we do pray. We might not just listen as dead people or as stones, but that we would listen as those who have renewed hearts, who respond appropriately unto you and unto your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In his book, Who Needs God?, Harold Kushner writes this, The next time you go to the zoo, notice where the lines are the longest and people take the most time in front of the cage. We tend to walk briskly past the deer and the antelope with only a passing glance at their graceful beauty. And if we have children, we may pause to enjoy the antics of the seals and the monkeys. But we find ourselves irresistibly drawn to the lions, the tigers, the elephants, the gorillas. Why? I suspect that without realizing it or understanding it, we are strangely strangely reassured at seeing creatures bigger or stronger than ourselves. It gives us the message at once humbling and comforting that we are not the ultimate power. Our souls are so starved for that sense of awe, that encounter with the grandeur which helps us to remind us of our real place in the universe, that if we can't get it in church, we will search for it and find it someplace else. Well, as we read the account in Genesis 1, it is what especially took place on the fourth day that especially fills our heart with that kind of awe, that kind of wonder that we have just read about. The creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And when the godly consider the immensity of the universe, their minds are filled with wonder and their lips are filled with praise. As David sat out on the hills of Judea, and he did so at a time where there wasn't the light pollution that we have around here, so when he lights on, you can't see much in the sky. There wasn't atmosphere pollution. He no doubt could see a tremendously more stars than we can see as we go out in their backyards at night. And when he looked at the heavens, the glorious sight that was spread out before him, he said, when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? 
Psalm 8. And even so, the vastness of the universe speaks to us of the immensity of God, the smallness of man. The only appropriate response is humble prostration in worship. And so as we return to this study once again this morning, this is my central theme. This is what I'm driving for from beginning to end, that we might be filled afresh with wonder and awe at the wonder and the greatness of our God, and that our lips will be filled with praise and our hearts will actually praise God from our hearts as well as from our lips. Well, in our first sermon on the fourth day of God's creative work, we began with the production or the creation of the luminaries. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. And the creation of these luminaries involved production by divine fiat. God spoke and it was done. He commanded and suddenly the moon and the sun and billions of galaxies of stars sprang into existence. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And what we read here is a real problem for those that want to harmonize the Bible with the theory of evolution. According to evolutionary theory, the sun came into existence before the earth. But Genesis 1 teaches that the earth came before the sun. And so by believers that want to figure out how to get millions of years, you see, to Genesis 1, they claim that what really happened on the fourth day is that the sun and the moon, they appeared. There was a lot of vapor in the sky. They couldn't see it very well. And then God kind of pulled the covers back and uh, the curtains back and it all appeared. And in this way, they suppose they can accommodate the evolutionary assumption that the sun came into existence long before the earth, billions of years ago, and that the earth broke away from the sun. But this is not only fanciful science, as we saw in our last study, but very bad exegesis of this passage. Because in verse 15, we read that God made the true great lights. It doesn't say that God made those true lights great appear. He does speak and uses the Hebrew word for appear, later on in, uh, in this passage. He made the sun, he created the sun and the moon. So first of all, we looked last time at the production or the creation of these luminaries, and then we looked secondly at the purposes of these luminaries in verses 14, uh, 15, and also 17. And these purposes were to separate day from night, to serve as signs and seasons, days and years, to rule the day over the day and over the night, and to serve also as lights in the firmament of the heaven, to give light on the earth. These various purposes we looked at last time. And then in the third place, this passage directs our attention to the particular luminaries themselves. And we see this in verse 16. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And as is the case with verses 14 and 15, the description is geocentric. It's from the perspective of people on earth as they see what's around them. It's from the earth's vantage point that this description is given. Compared with several of the other planets, the earth is very little, very small, especially compared to the sun and other stars, it's, it's tiny. And, but yet it is absolutely unique in God's purposes. God's purposes center around the earth because it's on this place, that this planet that God placed man. And it's to this planet that God sent his son to save them from their sins. We noted in particular, we only got started with the first of these three luminaries, the greater light, which is the sun. And in verse 60, we read that God made the greater light to rule the day. And we noted how the sun is truly a remarkable object. It has 1.3 million times the Earth's volume. And at its surface, it is almost 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 14 uh, million degrees Fahrenheit at its core. And its output requires 4 million metric tons of matter to be consumed every second that it burns out there in space. And yet it never burns away. Amazing. And it's exceptionally stable, different than many other stars that have 
huge flares. If, if the sun were that star, we would be burnt to a crisp with those flares that come from other planets, but other, other stars. But the sun is very stable and consistent. There are minor flares that come up from time to time, and sometimes these uh, cause there to be some global warming temporarily, but this is not the nature of the sun. It's very stable. Uh, most stars that emit they, 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 they emit these flares, by the way, sometimes they're 100 to 100 million times as great as what took place years ago when the uh, power grid of northern Quebec was fry, fried by one of these fair, flares. And so what they had was really small compared to what we see out there in space. And while we're talking about the sun, I want to address an objection that we didn't have time to address in our last sermon. And it's the objection of unbelievers that the Bible teaches that the sun goes around the earth. Anybody ever hear that objection? They read the Bible and they say, well, look, the Bible, these are primitive people. They don't know that the earth goes around the sun. They make it sound like the sun goes around the earth. And this objection, it makes an elementary blunder in physics. In all reality, all motion must be described with respect to a reference frame. The Bible simply chooses the earth as its reference frame. And even a modern astronomer, he's going to say, what does he say? He says, look at the sunrise, that beautiful sunrise. That's what he says. You see, if he's talking to somebody that he knows, somebody that's not an astronomer, he doesn't say, well, look at the way the earth has rotated so that our line of sight, the sun, has become almost tangential to the horizon. He doesn't say that. It might be more scientifically accurate to say that. The next time you're out there with your lover at, at sunrise, because you want to be scientifically af- uh, accurate, then uh, say, look at the way the earth has rotated so that our line of thought, the sun, has become almost tangential to the horizon. And boy, she'll just brace you. She'll be, oh, that was such a wonderful, loving, busy thought. No, she think, well, who are you? Well, we speak, you see, of the sunrise even though we know the sun doesn't rise above us, but rather it is the turning of the earth that makes it look that way. And just to give you an illustration, how do we speak about a stopped car, a car that stops? We speak of it being stopped relative to the ground that it's driving on. But in actuality, when we're stopped, even at that moment, we are moving around 1,000 miles an hour. Because that's a speed at which, at any given point, especially around the creator, uh, equa- equator, the Earth is moving through space. And also, it is rotating about 1,000 miles an hour. So let's say you're driving 60 miles an hour, and you come to a stop. How do you describe that? Do you explain that you were moving at a, a speed of 1,060 miles an hour, the speed of the Earth's rotation plus the 60 miles an hour, is that the way you describe it? Or, and you slow down, by the way, to 1,000 miles an hour because you stopped. Is that the way you describe it? Or would you describe your speed in reference to the speed at which the Earth orbits the sun, not just the way it spins on its axis, but the speed at which it's orbiting the sun? And this takes place at 67,000 miles an hour. As it moves around for 365 days, it's moving at that speed. So the next time you're stopped by the police for driving 60 miles an hour in a 50-mile-an-hour zone, and he he asks you, do you know how fast you were driving? Well, sir, I was driving 627,060 miles an hour. Is that what you would say? Huh? You would say, well, sir, that's what it all adds up to. 67,000 miles an hour around the sun plus 560,000 miles an hour through the galaxy as well as that. And plus 60 miles on the earth, and it all, it all comes to 627,000 miles an hour and 60. Well, obviously, we don't speak that way because we speak about stopping in relationship to the ground that we are driving upon. Or suppose you're driving in a car, and the, you're in the passenger seat, and the driver, he's tailgating the car that's in front of you. And you know that this is going to make it dangerous if, you, if he has to stop fast. And so you tell the driver to pull back. Well, what are you saying when you tell him to pull back? Are you telling him to slam on the brakes? Is that what you're telling him to do, to to just put your car in reverse and start going in reverse? No. 
you're using the reference point at that point the reference point is the car that's in front of you and so when you slow down you pull back in relationship to that car so when the bible speaks of the rising of the sun it's only speaking of the sun as it appears in reference to the earth well i wanted to get that little bit in uh, because that's such a common objection uh, before we move on in our exposition of this passage but now we come in the second place to the lesser light which is the moon. And just like with the sun, the text doesn't explicitly refer to the moon by name. Instead, it describes it as the lesser light. And the moon is actually largely black because its surface is covered with basalt, but it looks white in the sky because it's a reflection. Even though it's black, and so much light from the sun is shining on it that it reflects back white to us. This is a remarkable satellite, the moon. <coughs> and as the heavenly object that is closest to the earth, its gravity is vital to the earth. And it's the main cause of the tides that we have around the oceans. The tides are very vital to the existence of, of creatures upon earth. The tides cause the earth's shorelines, and they cleanse them. They help keep the ocean currents circulating. They prevent the ocean, therefore, from stagnating, from becoming one giant stagnant pool that never moves. The tides also benefit man by scouring out shipping channels and by diluting sewage discharges. And in some places, with there have been units with turbines or paddles or that have been used to harness energy from the tides. And there's an enormous energy that comes from the movement of water. It moves much more forcefully than air. And according to a National Geographic website that I got on, the largest tidal power plant in the world is the Siwa Lake Tidal Power Station on the coast of South Korea. You say, well, do they have any around our country? Well, there's not much around our country because there are not so many places that... Um, Tidal energy can be harnessed in the same way in all places around the coasts of, of America and other parts of the world. And tidal power, it's in its infancy, and therefore only a few places where it is cost-effective and environmentally suitable. But the day could come when we see energy being generated actually by the moon as well as the sun, when the tidal power is harnessed uh, for the generation of electricity. But... Let me just say here, with respect to the moon, that the moon is a headache for evolutionists. Evolutionists, they have a hard time explaining where the moon came from. And there are all kinds of theories that have great difficulties, every single one of them. And the theory, for instance, that the moon was hurtling through space, and then the earth captured it, it drew it into itself, this is untenable, because it has a perfectly circular orbit. If it had drawn in a, a, a body flying through space, it would have resulted in an elliptical type of an orbit. And that's not what we have. And so that's a problem. But then there was another idea. George Darwin, the son of Charles Darwin, he proposed that a chunk was spun off from the Earth. But such a chunk, it would not have the perfect spherical shape that the moon has, nearly perfect. and the, It would have left the Earth with much less of a, of a ball shape than it is. And so this seems very unnatural. And, and furthermore, at the point at which it is breaking off, it would have been shattered by the Earth's gravitational forces. And the current theory is that an object called, and these are current evolutionary theory, that there's an object that was called the Thea that they say is two or three times the mass of the planet of Mars. It crashed into the Earth billions of years ago. But this theory it doesn't explain how both the sun and the moon are almost perfect spears. And also, it's very likely that the large mass that crashed into the Earth, it would have had a different chemical composition. And what they brought back from the moon is very chemically similar to what we have here upon Earth. So, this is a problem for evolutionists to discover how the moon came into existence. Now, what we've learned about the moon, it also refutes the theory that the moon was formed billions of years ago. Our astronauts... They only discovered about an inch dust on the surface of the moon. Now, there's a lot of space dust out there, little space garbage that floats through the 
through the, through the uh, universe. And if the, earth, if the moon had been hurtling through space for billions of years, it would have gotten a lot more dust upon it than just one inch of meteoric dust. And furthermore, scientists have discovered that the tides are slowing down the Earth's rotation, just a tiny fraction. And this results in the length of a day increasing 0.002 seconds per century. That's a very small amount. But this is significant. This means that the moon, or I should say the Earth, is slowly losing its angular momentum and that the moon is slowly receding from the Earth, is backing off at a very slow pace from the Earth. This takes place about one and a half inches a year that it draws away further from the Earth. But multiply this out by billions of years. That's a problem. The moon never could have been closer than 11,500 miles away because its gravitational forces would have shattered it. And this doesn't provide for the billions of years demanded by the theory of evolution. If, if this is the pace at which it is drawing away, and assuming you try to put it all in reverse, it would have been too close for this to have taken place according to the theory of evolutionists. So this is a real headache for evolutionists. And here I want to address an objection that is raised by skeptics. In referring to the sun and the moon, Genesis 1.16 of it speaks of them as being the two great lights. But in reality, you say, well, scientists will say, well, look, these are ignorant people. They didn't know how to write back then. In order, they didn't really know that the stars were really much bigger lights than the sun, and especially much bigger than the moon. And interestingly, even back in the Middle Ages, though, they had a different view. The theologian Thomas Aquinas, citing even an earlier Christian scholar from the 4th century, and he's back in the 13th century, and he's citing uh, Chrysostom, he answers this objection. In Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, question 70, there is this objection that he raises. As astronomers say, there are many stars larger than the moon. Therefore, the sun and the moon alone are not correctly described as the two great lights. Interesting. Back in the 1200s, he's answering this objection. And here's his answer. As Chrysostom says, the two lights are called great, not so much with regard to their dimensions, but as to their influence and power. For though the stars be of greater bulk than the moon, yet the influence of the moon is more perceptible to the senses in this lower world. Moreover, as far as the senses are concerned, its apparent size is greater. And so he understands his principle that this is a geocentric description. It's describing the size of the sun and the moon and how great they are upon the, and their influence upon the earth. And they're much greater. And so it speaks of them in that way. And in answer to these skeptics, we might also point out that modern astronomers, they use exactly the same kind of language that the Bible uses. Astronomers speak of the absolute magnitude of a, car, of, of a star, that is its intrinsic brightness in itself, how bright it is, but also they speak of its apparent magnitude, how it appears to us, how much light gets to us from that star or from whatever other body is out there. And so they even speak, you see, from the perspective of the earth. And in this sense, when Genesis 1 speaks of the moon as one of the two great lights, it is perfectly accurate. It is speaking of the moon and in terms of how much light it brings to us. It is one of the two great lights. And I think there's a spiritual lesson even that we can glean from the way the scripture speaks here. In terms of the absolute magnitude of its light, because of its light being reflected, because it's a borrowed light, the moon is inferior to the stars. But in respect to its usefulness, it is far more useful than all the other stars that are out there in the universe. And in a similar way in the church, those who serve in the church, they are the ones that are most useful, even though maybe their talents are not as great as others. The real great lights, if you want to put it that way, the real great lights are not always those that have the greatest gifts in the church, but those that humbly do good with what they have. As Jesus said, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Well, this is what I 
wanted to say about the moon. But in addition to the sun and the moon, verse 16, it speaks of the stars. He made the stars also. This is what we read at the end of the verse. Merely by speaking the word, the innumerable galaxies of stars, they came into being. But because of the focus on the earth, compared with the way that the sun and the moon serve the earth, the stars seem more insignificant. So the vast universe of the stars that God made, it just gets a throwaway line at the end of the verse. Uh, he, he also made the stars. That's the way, it's almost the way, the way it reads. He made these great lights and, oh yeah, he made those stars as well. And in fact, he made, is in italics in many of our versions, which indicates that in the Hebrew there is not the, the noun or the pronoun he and the verb made. These are supplied by the translator. And literally all, the, all it has here is he just says at the end of this description, stars also. And this is surely one of the greatest understatements ever in history. Think about this. He made the stars also. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, the stars also. Now with respect to these stars, I want to say something about, first of all, their huge variety. Now some stars, they dwarf the sun in size and power. And I'm not expecting you keep all these numbers in your head. I'm just wanting you to get the basic picture. These are massive beings out there. The most massive and luminous star that's known, called R13 or R136A1. This is in a galaxy called the Large Magellanic Cloud. It's a violent type of a star called a Wolf Riot which is a subset of the blue stars. The blue stars are the hottest of the stars. And this particular star has a surface temperature that is almost nine times as hot as the sun's temperature. It is 265 times more massive than the sun. It's huge. It would take 1.3 million Earths to equal the volume of the sun. And then multiply that 1.3 million Earths Multiply that now by 265. That gives you the picture. It means that it would take 345 million Earths to equal the volume of this particular star. I don't know about you, but I, my mind is, I, I can't grasp that. It's beyond my ability to compute. We're not even talking about the light years between stars. I'm just talking about the immensity of some of the stars that are out there. This one star is 8.7 million times brighter than the sun. And yet, R136A1 is by no means even the largest of all the stars. Take, for instance, the red hypergiant, NML Cygni. These scientists, they need to get up a better naming system here. But I don't, that's all I have is to go what they've been called. And this particular star, it has 1,650 times the sun's radius and 4.5 billion times its volume. Now think with me, the, 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 the earth is tiny compared to the sun, but this star is 4.5 times bigger than the sun. And if this star were at the center of our solar system, it is so huge that its, its circumference would, would be all the way out to the planet Jupiter. That's how, how huge this particular star is. But because it's a red star, Interestingly, it is not as hot or bright as the R136A1 that I told you about a moment ago. And while that star is 8.7 million times brighter than the sun, NML Cygni is only 300,000 times brighter than the sun. Only we put in, in uh, quotes. So there's a huge variety to these stars. The differences of brightness and color, the red ones being not as bright, the, white, the blue ones the hottest, and the white, which is like the sun, being somewhere in between. A difference in size, difference in temperatures. And commenting on this amazing heavenly variety in his great resurrection chapter, clearly alluding to Genesis 1.16, the Apostle Paul writes, there are also celestial bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of, of, the, 
of the celestial is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another in glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 40 and 41. And then, in addition to the variety of the stars, you'll notice in your outlines, we've also noted their innumerability. You can't count them. The observable universe is so huge, what we can see through our telescopes is 48 billion light years across. It's so huge that it is estimated to contain 10 to the power of 22 stars. That would be 10 with 22 zeros after the 10. And this number is so huge that if you had a computer that had the ability to count And let me get this right. It can count a trillion of these stars a second. Think with me. Counts a trillion a second. It would take 300 years to count all those stars. I can't can't wrap my mind around that. It tells me, though, our God is a great God. What he's made is stupendous. It's awesome. It's hard for us to comprehend. God took Abraham outside in a semi-desert area. And no doubt the light pollution was less, basically non-existent at that point, no doubt. And the air would have been more desert-like and therefore could see through better. And God said to Abraham, who no doubt could see a whole lot more than we can when we go outside. He says, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you were able to number them. Jeremiah writes, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Jeremiah 33, 22. Dr. Sarfati, who has provided a lot of this information for me, he's a creation scientist that has written at great length on these things. He points out that it took science millennia to catch up with the Bible on this. Before Galileo trained his telescope on the skies, astronomers could only see 3,000 stars in each hemisphere. That's what you could see with the naked eye. And even Galileo could only see about 30,000 stars. But modern telescopes have affirmed that their number is so vast it is absolutely impossible for all the scientists together and all the machinery together to count the stars. Our own galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. And the nearest galaxy to our galaxy, the Andromedaea galaxy, is 2 million light years away. And scientists tell us that there's some 100 billion of these galaxies, each with billions of stars. But in spite of the enormous size, heat, and brightness, and number of the stars, after describing the creation and the roles of the sun and the moon, Genesis 1.16 just simply says, and the stars. It's like an afterthought. Creating these innumerable, these enormous hot balls of gas, this was effortless for the Almighty. He speaks, instantly they are created. Wow. Well, having noted the variety and the innumerability of these stars, let me also point out their changes. Creation scientists, they don't deny that stars can change. And this is sometimes called stellar evolution, but it's nothing like biological evolution. The theory of biological evolution, it requires the generation of different genetic sequences, new DNA, to have a different species, to have new information in it. But this asks for the impossible, because although the degeneration of genetic information takes place in, in, in time, it never is an absolutely new species, and never is an absolutely DNA that's communicated, or that, is, that springs out of a, a series of animals of one kind into another species altogether. But it requires no new genetic information for a star to undergo changes. Dr. Danny Faulkner, he explains the difference. He says stars are not very complex. 
And so-called stellar evolution, though I don't necessarily accept all of it, is a different critter from biological evolution. So I don't have a problem with the idea that a cloud of gas created initially by God in an especially unstable condition or compressed by a shock wave from a nearby exploding star might collapse under its own gravity and start to heat up to form a new star. One example of the sudden change of a star was discovered in the constellation Sagittarius in 1996. Two years earlier, it was seen as a white dwarf star. It was a much smaller star, and it was seen in the center of a planetary nebula. Nebula is where there's a huge, all kinds of particles and gas that radiate light together. And with a diameter about the size of the Earth's diameter, even though enormously denser, it was invisible to the naked eye. But in 1996, a team of astronomers observed it changed from that status to a bright yellow giant, 80 times greater than the sun in its diameter. Its its diameter increased by a factor of 8,000, and its volume by a factor of over 500,000 million. And so, two years later, it was seen to have expanded even further. It became a red supergiant with a diameter 150 times that of the sun. But as fast as it grew, it then shrank, and it released a great amount of debris. And by 2002, the star itself was invisible even to the most powerful telescopes, though it was detectable in the infrared which shines through the dust. How would you like to have that star for your sun? We'd be fried, wouldn't we? Instant. And uh, it wouldn't be suitable. The sun is so different. It's so suitable for the earth. And this is an example of what scientists call a born-again star, what I've just described. And the more these transformations are studied, the more amazing the wonder of God's creation appears. You look at some of those pictures of nebulae and the the galaxies and the stars out there. It's just absolutely stunning. And I think we're going to be looking at these things. We're going to be studying these things for all eternity. Heaven's not going to be boring, folks. There's going to be a lot to study, a lot to be excited about, especially being excited about God and the Lord Jesus, but even about the things that God has made. This brings me to say something about the planets that revolve around some of these stars. For a long time, it was thought that our solar system is the only solar system with planets orbiting around that star. But since 1990... Almost 2,000 planets have now been confirmed as orbiting stars around other stars than the sun. And in a very few cases, direct observation of these planets has been possible. But for most of these 2,000 planets, they have been detected either because of their gravitational pull on the star or because there's a little shadow that passes between the gaze of the telescope and that star, a little shadow just like the moon has an eclipse and it comes in between us and the sun. They can see that. And logically, all of these planets, as well as the planets in our own solar system, they were created on day four of the creation week. Now think with me about this. Charles Colson, he reported in his Breakpoint commentary that in April of 1999, astronomers at Harvard and also at San Francisco State University announced that they had discovered evidence of three planets orbiting a nearby star, Upsilon Andromeda. This was a star 44 light years away. And what they found, it went counter to previously held theories about planetary formation, how these planets were formed. The standard theory for, for a long time, it was that, well, like our solar system, it might, might, must be like the other solar systems. The the small, dense planets are closer to the sun, and the ones that are more gaseous and bigger, they're further away from the sun. The big ones like Jupiter, Saturn, and so forth. But this is simply not the case with Upsilon Abadreas, massive close-in planets. Astronomers are learning that our solar system is even more remarkable, even more unique than previously thought. In the opening years of our century, in connection with the 20 
newly discovered planets outside of our solar system, it was observed with respect to them that half of them moved in egg-shaped killer orbits. So they were constantly being prone to collide with one another. But what do we have in the solar system that we're in? They're all orbiting on one plane. There's no chance for any of them to, to collide with another. They're perfectly set in orbit by God, who had concern for this one planet, that it might be kept safe, that it might be provided for until the coming of the Lord Jesus. This is absolutely amazing. Astronomer Jeffrey Marcy, who was involved in the discoveries that I just mentioned, he said with respect to our own solar system, and as far as I know, this is an unbelieving man. He says it's like a jewel. You've got circular orbits. They're all on the same plane. It's perfect. It's gorgeous. It's almost uncanny. So Colson commented, Dr. Marcy may not realize it, but his language echoes that of the great Isaac Newton more than 300 years ago. Newton likewise found our solar system beautiful. You remember the diagram that, that he created, the little engines and, 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 and so forth that I talked about a couple weeks ago. He, he saw this as being especially beautiful. But he took that insight to its logical conclusion. That's what Newton did. And this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets, he wrote, could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent, powerful being. Well, inevitably, discussions about other planetary systems, they raise questions about life on other planets. We're hearing about that a lot, aren't we? UFOs? What are these things that we're seeing in the sky from time to time? Maybe there's some kind of planet that's out there around some other sun or whatever, and some other creatures, and they're kind of spying on us. And many evolutionists, they believe that since life evolved on Earth, it must have also evolved on other Earth-like planets. But there are insuperable problems with the idea of evolution of life from non-living chemicals on Earth or anywhere else. Finding planets more Earth-like than Venus, and Venus... It's a hot planet. We could never live there. But it's probably more similar to our planet than, than the other planets. And finding planets that are even as good as Venus, it, it, it's proven to be a frustrating task. And laying aside the question of the physical, impossible, physical possibility of life on another planet, there are also theological problems with this idea of intelligent life on other planets. The Bible doesn't provide us with the slightest evidence that God created any extraterrestrial life or aliens on other planets. And furthermore, there's considerable biblical evidence that rules it out. God gave mankind dominion over the rest of creation, Genesis 1 tells us. And this rules out the possibility of some more advanced aliens contacting us and spying us on our dominion and conquering mankind. This just is... God put man upon earth to have dominion, not aliens. When Adam fell, the whole of creation was cursed. Romans 8 tells us this would logically include alien worlds. Adam's fall brought a curse, and it would have brought, you see, because of all, you know, even the solar system is not what it once was, and the planets and so forth. But it would logically mean that his fall would bring a curse upon and the Vulcan and Klingon worlds, to use the alien races that are depicted in Star Trek. And God's going to someday destroy this whole created universe. And this means that any other race that didn't fall in Adam, it would be destroyed. And this is contrary to the way in which the, the God of the Bible speaks. God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, we are told, repeatedly. And God took on, this is most important, God took on human nature in the incarnation of Christ expressly so that humans might be saved. Hebrews 2.14, he took our nature as a brother. He became our kinsman redeemer. He became a fellow descendant of Adam. He never took on Vulcan or Klingon nature. He died once, Hebrew tells us, for the sins of those whose nature he took, for the sins of human beings. And after he rose from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of the Father to be the advocate and the redeemer of human beings. And at his second coming, he's going to return to earth. 
incarnation you see is unique to the earth. And this plainly excludes incarnations in other ancient worlds. And we also know this because the church of the redeemed people are called the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, Revelation 19. And this is a problem for people to speculate about other incarnations to redeem alien races because Christ, we believe, is monogamous. He has one bride. The bride of Christ, we speak about, is his human bride. He's not polygamous with Vulcan and Klingon brides as well. He is our bride, dedicated to be our Savior both now and for all eternity. And then furthermore, the idea of space travel from other solar systems, this is fraught with problems. The closest star system to ours is Alpha Centauri. And this is 4.37 light years away. And one light year is around 6 trillion miles. And this raises the question. This idea that there's out there some planets out there around these stars. Take the very closest one we're supposing. How does a spaceship get the energy to travel the distance from that place to our planet? Dr. Sarfati, uh, Sarfati he, he calculates that even traveling, let's say it's only a third of the speed of light, which would be super fast. But let's say a third of the speed of light in a spacecraft that's two-thirds the size of the Apollo lunar module. He has calculated that the kinetic energy required to achieve such speeds and travel the 13 years, it would take 13 years at a third the speed of light, this would consume more than the whole Earth's energy consumption for one month. And collisions with little particles in space would be a terrible problem. A snowflake, when you're going that face, that fast, a snowflake would collide with as much kinetic energy as four tons of TNT. And a collision with a one kilogram particle, it would be like a one megaton hydrogen bomb. How would a spacecraft make it through all that in one piece? Space is dirty. It's got lots of debris. And slowing down also from such speeds to enter into the world, this would involve G-forces that would instantly be fatal to any type of creature. So, whatever these things are out there, they want to talk about these UFOs and so on, it's not something from some other planet around some kind of a star system that's out there. Let's just get rid of that, that silly idea. I don't know what they are. God knows, and we can trust him to take care of it. Well, having spoken at length about the particular luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars, I only have time to just say a few words about the fourth part of our text, the perfection of these luminaries. In verses 18b and 19, the narrative concludes, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So after creating the sun and the moon and the stars, he called what he had made good, perfectly good. And there was at that time nothing about any of the stars, about any of the planets, or any other heavenly body, nothing that was out of place, nothing that indicated conflict or catastrophe in any way. It was all good. And Deborah's song she speaks of the stars, as it were, fighting against Sisera, Judges 5. And when God comes to judge the nations, Joel says the sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. The stars, in some way, that's out there, have been affected by the fall. We are, we are told that. But when God first made the heavenly bodies, they weren't in any way turned against his creatures at all. Throughout the vast galaxies, there was perfect harmony. And the majesty and the omnipotence of God, it affected only that which was good, perfectly good, only good. As we try to conclude our thoughts on this, what took place on the fourth day, I want to just say, first of all, by way of application, I'm not going to spend time on this, but the Genesis account of the creation of the sun, moon, and the stars, it teaches the folly 
of resorting to the signs of the zodiac for directions rather than the creator. Don't get mixed up reading the, the, your uh, uh, horoscopes. Don't get mixed up on that kind of a dangerous practice. Unlike the sun and the moon, the stars, they have no ruling function on earth. And this shows us the folly of depending on them for our fates. Instead of relying upon them, we must rely upon the creator of the stars. Man is ever prone to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Let's not make that mistake. But for most of us, I don't think that this is a real temptation. So I want to move on here to emphasize in the second place by way of conclusion that the contemplation of these luminaries, this should fill our hearts with wonder and awe. I've told you a lot of things that we just, it, it, I can say the words, but I don't really understand them. It's so immense. It is so beyond human comprehension. The God who made the sun and the moon and the stars, he's a wondrous God. He's an amazing God. And his creation of these luminaries, this should evoke from us wonder and praise and thanksgiving. In heaven, the elders fall down before him who sits upon the throne. And they cry out, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God spoke the word. The huge sun came into existence in a moment. It's not that billions of years ago, after swirling around for billions of years, a nebulae coalesced into the sun, and a few stray rocks they started revolving around the sun. It didn't happen that way. The idea that the wonders that we behold throughout the earth and throughout our own solar system and throughout the universe, how it all came into being, the idea that this all came into being by accident, this is absolutely preposterous, especially the perfectly ordered planetary system that we have. It's a wonder-working God that made these things. And what he made is absolutely stupendous. Astronomers, they tell us that the earth compared with the sun is like a one-inch ball. And by the way, a one-inch ball would be about two-thirds the size of a golf ball in diameter. Take a one-inch ball, and you set that little one-inch ball next to a ball that is nine feet in diameter. That gives a little idea of the, the, the insignificance of the earth compared to the sun. And the sun is just a medium-sized star. There's, we talked about some that, are, that, it, that just make the sun seem like it's almost nothing. It isn't anywhere near as big as these red supergiant, especially Antares. Fifty million of our suns could fit inside that one star. And Antares is small compared with our galaxy. And there are billions of other galaxies in the universe. The size of these entities is just beyond comprehension. And more than this, the God that made these things is beyond our comprehension. This wonder-working God, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, Isaiah 40 tells us. Just like you open the curtain in the morning, he spreads it out like a curtain. It's that is simple to him. To whom, therefore, will you liken me, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes in high and see who created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Isaiah 40 tells us, oh, dear people, we should wonder at this. We should be filled with awe. We should take our psalms and sing to the creator such psalms as we already sang during this hour. We should take up such hymns as that great creation hymn we sang two weeks ago by Joseph Addison. A spacious firmament on high, with all the blue ethereal sky, and spangled heavens, a shining frame, their great original proclaim. But then a final and a third word of application. Let us remember that the God that made all these wonders, he did so to prepare a place for mankind. He had a purpose in mind. He made the immense sun that we described earlier, and he set our planet in an orbit at just the right distance from the sun, all with a view to preparing a place for you and me. He's good to us. He's good to his creatures. 
Our hearts are filled with wonder. Our hearts are filled with admiration as we gaze upon the the wild crags and the peaks of the mountains or when we see the power of waves crashing against the rocks. These are awe-inspiring sights. But most of us, even after we see those wonders, we're thankful for a cozy home to go back to, aren't we? When we gaze through our telescopes and see the wild nebulae with their brilliant colors and their terrifying power, we become all the more grateful that God prepared a planet for us just the right distance from the warmth of the sun and set a moon around it and tilted our planet just the right way so there'd be changes of seasons and the moon so there'd be changes of the tides and and all the good that that brings. He perfectly set it up. And after God saw the sun and the moon and the stars that he made on that day, he saw that it was good. You and I serve a good God. The thought of being left to the mercy of being baked by the sun, the thought of being left to the mercy of impersonal and hostile forces of nature. People are terrified. They're they're tearing our our economy apart in, in this country because of their terror, because of their lack of faith and the goodness and the care of God. Our God is good to his people. He's good to you and me. But there's coming a day when God does indeed turn the forces of nature against those that rebel against him. We read in Revelation 16 of that day in which the fourth bowl will be poured out on the sun and of the men being scorched with great heat and of the way that they will blaspheme God and continue to refuse to repent and give him glory. But those that turn from their sins, and if you're still in your sins, there's mercy, there's opportunity for you. Those that turn from their sins, they take refuge in the great God who will bring those plagues. And you take, can take refuge in Jesus. Those that are in Jesus will not be afflicted that way. And much about this world has become hostile to us because of sin. And sometimes men even now suffer under the sun's heat. And sometimes they die. But those who love God, they await that day when the light of the sun is replaced by the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb. And if you partake of that world to come, if you partake of that wonderful world, that world in which it will again return to its perfect state as God made it to begin with, you will enter that city in which there no longer is a need for the sun, for the glory of God illumines it, and the Lamb is its light. I can't wait. And you? We have a hope, dear people. We have a reason to press on, even in these evil days. God is engineering all the things that he has done throughout history and throughout creation to the grand finale that he has awaiting for you and me, a day which, above all, we will give praise and honor and glory unto him. May the Lord help us to do so even now. And knowing that he's a good God, he cares for his people, we can trust him in evil days. We can trust him when trouble surrounds us, knowing that this good God doesn't do anything in our lives, but he has good intentions in mind. And eventually, we will see the goodness of God and why it was that he did what he did. Let's pray. Holy Father, we have considered things that our minds cannot get a hold of today. We have considered distances and intensities of heat and light that are beyond our understanding. Who can understand what you have done? Who has been your counselor? Who can tell you what have you done or ask you or demand of you to explain why have you done this? You alone, O Lord, are our creator. You are our Lord. You made these stupendous things that you made and you still govern them. And in the last day, you will bring them back to perfect order. And we bless you and praise you that we have this hope. Help us to labor on in hope. And we pray, O oh Lord, that by your divine grace, you would lay hold of the heart of anyone in this room that is not right with you. For who would be but a madman would want to be against such a God that has such power, has such immensity of, of purposes, and, and a God that works 
great things beyond comfort. Who would want to have that God for an enemy? Oh, Lord, bring such ones to stop rebelling against you. Bring such ones to find refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. I pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior.